sin. Psalms chapter 23 and verse number 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Other translations read it like this, that he refreshes my soul. Speaking of verse number three, he refreshes my soul. He, he revives my life. Brings me to green pastures. He leads me to the still waters that I, I need, so desperately need. But he refreshes me. He restores me. He, he revives my life. Gill's exposition of the Bible expounds on it a little bit more. Verse 3, he restoreth my soul, i.e., it revives it. He reinvigorates it. Um, when it is exhausted and weary, he brings my soul back to life. Aren't you glad that you have a God that can restore, can bring things back to first state? He restoreth my soul either when backslidden and brings it back again when led or driven away. I like that. It says, he restoreth my soul even either when I'm backslidden, when I've backed up, when I make the effort, he is there to restore me and brings it back again when led or driven, when I've let circumstances drive me away and heals its backslidings or rather when fainting, swooning and ready to die away, he fetches it back again. He relieves, refreshes and comforts with the discoveries of his love. With the promises of his word and with the consolations of his spirit and such like reviving cordials. No matter what I'm going through, no matter what I've done, no matter what I've experienced, God's there to bring me back. To breathe fresh life into me again. Amen. Real quickly, Joel chapter 2 verse 24. Joel chapter 2 verse 24. The last scripture we'll read corporately here this afternoon. Joel chapter 2 verse 24. The threshing floors will be full of grain. And this is what I feel in the spirit here today. Amen. With that last song, it's, it's never just by chance or happenstance when God begins to, to pull a service together. It takes all the loose threads and just begins to cinch them together. And it says, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Verse 25, then I will make up to you. I will make up to you. And restore unto you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. In other words, there has been some years in your life where things were stripped away and taken away. The Lord is telling Israel that I will make this up to you. I will make it up to you and restore unto you for the years. The years of loss. I'm going to make, can I tell you that he restores it a whole lot quicker than it was taken away. The creeping locust, the canker worm, the stripping locust, the caterpillar, the gnawing locust, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, then my people will never be put to shame. Our first scripture here today in our scripture text, Psalms 23 verse 3, he says, to the, uh, the psalmist is saying that he restores my soul. I couldn't make it without him. He revives me, reinvigorates me. Joel 2 and 24 says, I'm going to make some things up to you. I'm going to restore unto you for the years. And it's a look at a neighbor and say, you're going to get it back. Woo! 
Come on, did you say it with a little bit of faith here today? You're going to get it back. Now, I don't think some of you really understand what you're saying. The word of the Lord said you're going to get some things back. Some of you said it, but you really didn't believe it when you said it. You're going to get some things back. Amen. I want to preach to you today just for a few moments on the God of restoration. The God of restoration. Amen. Let's lay our Bibles down here for a moment. Let's lift our hands and ask the Lord to have his way in the remainder of the service. Lord, we're needy people today. We need you to move. In your precious name, amen, you may be seated today. The God of restoration. The art of restoration. What a powerful work of the Lord. Everything and everyone in due time will be in need of restoration. Let me say it again. Everything and everyone in due time in the right season, will be in need of restoration. Man's fallen soul, though undeserving, was granted restoration. Thank you, Jesus. This act of power by God is put into action in every area, in every realm of creation. It is through the power, the wonderful power of restoration, that we can see glimpses of the Creator's grace and mercy come to the surface in His dealings with humanity. Restoration defined says to make look as originally looked by repairing or retouching, to bring back to a previous rank or condition. You can see it in the natural world that we live in, the flowers, the rose, the day lily that reap the sustenance gained by soaking in the early morning dew. But as the cool morning hours pass, the elements began to take their toll and began to weaken the bloom and the petals and the stem and the leaves of those beautiful flowers. It begins to lose its vibrancy and posture. It begins to slump. It begins to turn and bend as external conditions cause it to fade. It is slowly but surely losing its vitality. The hot noonday sun dries out its petals and when the wind bends it and batters it, it doesn't straighten up as quick as it once did. And by the time the sun goes down, that beautiful creation and all of its luster and its red and its white and all of the, the beautiful green that makes up the body and the leaves. Now this beautiful creation is in need of restoration. The flower has been faded. The leaves are withering. It needs a fresh touch again. 
So once again, the early morning dew and the restorative power of the Creator is needed to bring the flower back to its original state. And the power of restoration is on full display. It can be readily seen throughout God's handiwork. The rain, the rain is God's way of pouring out restoration on His earthly creation. You can see the dry, the parched, the withering grass can be brought back to its beautiful color by God's principle of restoration. I, I like green grass. I'm meticulous when it comes to my lawn. I, every time that our dog goes out, uh, um, whether early in the morning or late at night, uh, I'll walk out. I like to feel the dew under my feet. Uh, I like if I see a weed, I'll just start pulling weeds with a garbage bag at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock at night. I, I love a beautiful lawn. So I, I notice when somebody's putting water on their grass and when somebody is not putting water on their grass. How tacky is that to let your lawn go brown? But I've noticed the day of rain that when you see that grass that is parched and withered and that grass, it can be brought back to its once beautiful color if God's principle of of restoration uh, begins to renew. I've noticed that one day of a good rain can do what a week of sprinklers cannot. One day of good rain from the heavens can do what a week worth of sprinkling cannot do. Why is that, Pastor Griffiths? Because the original creator, the designer, knows exactly what needs to be done to restore it back to its original design. In the painting, in the art world, there is a brilliant art of restoration that few try. It's a skill and a talent that must be honed and perfected over years of study and apprenticeship. It takes years of practice and, and, and you have to find a mentor and it takes years of being a protege to be trusted with the hand or the work of a master. There are only a few people in the world that are entrusted with such a task and for them there is there's no room for error when millions of dollars are riding on the skilled, meticulous hand of a master restore. The wrong brushstroke, the wrong hue of color, uh, the wrong movement, the wrong cut can render a painting, a piece of art that's worth millions to just pennies on the dollar. They'll take a priceless piece of art that is faded or somehow become blemished over time. Perhaps it got wet. Perhaps uh, there's smoke damage. Uh, or perhaps it just wasn't kept in the right temperature, uh, uh, the right environment. Uh, but with a meticulous skill, they begin to restore it back uh, to its original allure and original luster. They will use carefully formulated cleansing agents uh, to remove the stains and the buildup uh, while doing no damage uh, to the art itself. Uh, special paints are used to bring the canvas uh, back to life, to give it its shine. Uh, all of this is done to to ensure that the work of art has a future and that the original design or intent of the creator is maintained throughout the years. Can I tell you that only a few have earned the right to retouch or repair the work of a master craftsman, a master painter, or a master sculptor. But when the art of restoration is perfected, one can simply name their price. And the brilliant, the brilliant artist, uh, Spanish artist Pablo Picasso, 
was once even barred from an art museum where his work was on exhibit. He was found on several occasions. The master was found on several occasions trying to retouch some of his older works. They stopped him and after he pleaded his case they, they, they still told him no. That it doesn't belong to you anymore. That, that it had been sold and you're not the rightful owner. But, but he said I'm the master. And when they told him he couldn't touch him this is what he told him. He said who can repair it better? Who knows the painting better than its creator? Who can know the intent of the master's original design but the creator? Who better to restore it than the one who first created it? I know some of you know where I'm going. This reminds me of another master creator that knows no equal. All other talent, all other skill, it all flows from the one creator, this one master. The universe was his easel. The earth was his canvas. His words became his brush as he spoke everything into existence. He pinned the stars to light up the velvet night. He put the blue in the sky, the green in the grass. He stroked the red and the rose. He brushed the stripes on the zebra. He pinned the spots on the leopard. And he too saw that the crown jewel of his creation you and I, humanity we had lost our first state. We had lost our shine. We had lost our luster. We had become blemished. The crown jewel of his creation, the greatest work of his hand, had become marred, had become blemished by the black mark of sin over time. And humanity had lost its luster and shine. And we were in desperate need of a restorative touch. So God looked out over creation and he knew that something had to be done. So the creator came into the realm of the creation he robed himself in flesh and his angels sat by in heaven and said there had to be another way. He came anyway. Why? Because nobody can fix you like Jesus can fix you. Divinity put himself in the realm of humanity. Why? Because nobody can fix us like the creator can fix us. He couldn't stand to see that the heart of man had faded. He couldn't stand to see that the heart of humanity had been blemished beyond recognition. So he set his plan into motion. His restorative work into action. And he went to work. Can I tell you this morning that God is the master restorer. He loves, he relishes the art of restoration. God is not a novice when it comes to bringing things back to life. He did it for Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. He did it for Martha and Mary when he called Lazarus back to life. Can I tell you that your master restorer. He is an expert at stepping into a situation where nothing has moved in a long period of time and bringing the luster and the shine back. He specializes in areas where there is no room for error. 
He's able to pick up the broken pieces of a life that perhaps has lost its way and put it back together. He specializes in taking the portrait of a family that's been tattered and torn and restoring it back to its original color and beauty. I was thinking about this this, this morning and my wife's going to probably say this is a little corny and get on to me but I remember um, some of the worst memories of my of, of my life when I was a kid was when it was time to take the family portrait. Oh, oh there's one picture. My sister's in the audience. She could tell you. Oh, my goodness. I remember Olin Mills. Who hasn't sat for a picture at Olin Mills? And I remember, and I, I don't know, I, I was probably five or six years old. I had a huge sore on the side of my face. And, and it was huge, about the size probably of a nickel. And when, you know, my head was much smaller then, so it really stood out. It was huge, all scabbed up, nasty looking. And there I am, sitting down by my dad's knee, just smiling with my double knit polyester suit. You know, you know, I'm working it with the silky shirt. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking. You're over 45. You know what I'm talking about. And I'm sitting there smiling. I was, I, I was too young to know that I looked ridiculous. And I remember sitting there watching and, and, and looking back at that picture. And every once in a while, I'll pull that picture out and look at it. And it just came to my mind. You know, Olin Mills has probably taken more family portraits than anybody else combined. But Olin Mills might have taken more family portraits than anybody. But nobody's touched up more families than my Jesus. If Olin Mills would have had Photoshop 35 years ago, I wouldn't have had that little blemish. But they didn't have it. Can I tell you? God doesn't need Photoshop. He's the original restorer. He's the original healer. Olin Mills might have taken the picture. But nobody can touch your family up like Jesus can. With each brush in your life, each move of the brush in your life, he restores faded hopes and faded dreams. And in the case of God's masterpiece, man, you and I, when sin and disobedience and iniquity diminished and tainted man, he knew that restoration was needed. Simply put, he was the originator. He was the restorer of man. He made us. He created us. And then he restored us to himself. There's a cute story of a woman at a garage sale. I don't go to garage sales. Only communists go to garage sales. And I don't go to, I don't, I hate garage sales. We, we were just at a conference and a guy said, you know, I won't have a garage sale because people want to fight over a 10 cent item and tell you, will you take two cent for it? It's only a dime. Just buy it. But my wife, she loves flea markets. She, she loves these little peddler malls around town. And she's always looking for a bargain, looking, looking, looking for a steal. And, and so people were out on this Saturday morning. And a garage sale had a great sign. And people showed up to it. And uh, um, this uh, lady showed up. And uh, she saw that this uh, had a little... Uh, uh, a little old antique copper kettle, but it was uh, really, really tarnished. Uh, and uh, it had potential, but it was really blemished. Uh, and it had a tag that read $2.50. And she carried it over to the lady um, and uh, said, look, you know, the, the discoloration is pretty bad. Do you have any idea? She's trying to, you know, trying to get her to come down, you know. you have any idea whether that discoloration uh, will come out? And the lady said, uh, well, you know what? I don't mind. i got some copper cleaner. I'll go inside and, and see if 
I can uh, fix it up just a little bit. And so she took that little $2.50 little tarnished, blemished copper kettle and went in and came back out. And the lady couldn't believe it. She looked at it. It was shining so bright. I mean, the sun was hitting it. It was like a disco ball. This thing was beautiful. And people that had noticed it but not really saw it before, it even got their attention. Now a line was starting to form over by the lady with the copper kettle. And she came back out. She said, I notice how beautiful it is. But not only did it have a, have a beautiful new, new appearance, it had a new price tag on it. And it said, restored like new, $15. Restored like new, $15. At first, she couldn't give the sucker away. But now, something that had value, something that had made it more attractive. Can I tell you, everything is more valuable after it's been washed up. Everything is a little more attractive after it's been cleaned up, after it's been restored. All it took was a simple cleansing, and it got its shine back. All it needed was a simple restoration, and it got its luster back. And when all the tarnish and when all the stains were removed, it got its luster back. Can I tell you that's what happens to a life uh, that God gets it, uh, God washes it up, uh, and God restores it. After he removes the stains and the blemishes uh, and where we've been and what we've done, uh, there's a whole lot more value added to us. Uh, he takes some repentance. Uh, he mixes it with a special cleaning agent called his blood. Uh, and it's applied in Jesus' name, baptism. Uh, and then he fills us with the Holy Ghost. Uh, and when the master restorer gets done, we get our joy back. Uh, we get our shine back. Uh, we get our victory back. Uh, we get our peace back. Uh, we get our life back. Allow yourselves to be put into the hands of the master restorer. You get it all back. And when the friends and family see you, they know something's different. They know something has happened. There's something different about you. What is different about you? Well, he's making me over again. He's cleaning me up. He's washing me up. Humanity was in need of a wash up. They were in need of to be restored. And the Bible says that we are all stained with sin. Romans 3 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are born into sin and shaped in iniquity. There had to be a repairing of the relationship between God and man. So Calvary, God through Calvary began to retouch the canvas of our hearts. He repaired his greatest masterpiece. And sin had caused a blotch mark on the fabric of our heart. He touched it up with a little red from the cross. And where disease and sickness had faded the work, he gently brushed on some stripes of his healing we are his masterpiece and we are his greatest work of restoration did you hear me we are his greatest masterpiece and yet we are also his greatest work of restoration I tell you this afternoon that we the church should be in the restoring business 
This is not a house of perfection uh, where the blemished and the broken uh, are discarded. Uh, we may come a little disfigured. Uh, we may show up a little discolored. Uh, we may come in this house broken and bruised. Uh, we may have lost our luster and shine. Uh, but we got into the hands of the restorer and he gives it back to us. Uh, you know what? You need to tell people that, that are holding your past against you. Uh, every time you start to live for God, there's always going to be somebody trying to stand between you and where God wants to take you. I'm reminded when the Lord started to call Jacob back to the land of his fathers. Uh, he had deceived his brother. He had deceived his father. He actually had a little bit of deception with his new father-in-law. He was running from his past. But God said, I want you to come back to the land of your fathers. I want you to clean up your act. It's time for you to come home. And Jacob gets all of his belongings and his wives and all of his herds. And he starts back towards God. And just as he started back towards God, he hears that Esau is coming. Somebody or something from his past was going to come stand in the way of God's restorative work. Can I tell you, it's not a matter of if somebody's going to try to keep you from being restored. It's only a matter of who is going to try to keep you from being restored. But what you need to tell them, when they point to your past, you need to tell them, he's working on me. He's not finished. Don't judge me yet. I'm not a finished product. But I'm not what I used to be. He's bringing the tapestry of my life back to its original shine. He is restoring me. He is restoring me. The real tragedy of the hour that we live in, Brother Perry, is that we live in a disposable society. The real danger of the culture, the real danger of the times that we live in can be found in what we lose sight of in a throwaway society. We are devaluing the most important things in life. And when we become a disposable society, when we become a throwaway society, all you got to look and see the things that we devalue that we are throwing out of our presence. You see, very few things are made to last. Very few things. You know, just like cell phones. It was proven about a year ago that, uh, um, that Apple, oh, Apple, Apple. We got some apostolics in here that I'm still a PC guy, and they're on me all the time. I said, hey, Apple products are fantastic, but, but they cause their products to mess up on purpose, so you got to go back and buy them again. And you know what? It was proven this year. That's exactly what they're doing with their phones, right? Causing the batteries to die. Every two years, basically, you got to go back and do Not very few things are made to laugh. Look, we've gone through two front-loader washing machines in three and a half years. Uh, we had a Maytag. They say that, you know, the Maytag repairman never has to work. No, that's not the case. Not anymore. And, and we've gone through. They don't make things like they used to make. One guy said, look, if you want a good washing machine that's going to stand the test of time, you got to get your top loader and you got to get the Speed Queen commercial. And I'm like, Speed, this is not a commercial for Speed Queen anyway. You got, I said, why? Because it's made, it's made to last. It's got the right parts. It's all metal. There's no plastic. And it'll just keep, it'll last. And he said, you know, the other top loader's about four or 500. This will be about 800, about 800 a piece. And he said, but, but it'll, it'll, it'll just, it, you can't wear it. It'll last you a lifetime. And, but very few things are made to last. And because we're in a society that, that we just, just discard every two years, we got to get another $1,000 phone. Think about that. Think about that. In 10 years, you could have paid a car off. 
with what we're paying on. Why? Because we got to get rid of it. Because we live in a disposable. It's expensive, but, but, but nothing's ever made to last. If it glitches, if it messes up, just dispose of it and throw it away. Fewer things are getting repaired. Well, well, you know, I, I didn't repair it because it's just cheaper to go get a new one. And, uh, and, 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 and it's, just, uh, it's just another atom, another item that we've added to an ever-increasing junk pile in our lives. But my fear is that in this culture, you can easily lose, lose sight of restoration. You can easily lose sight of the value in things that have been discarded and said they, lo- they no longer bring any, any positivity to my life. And if we're not careful, we'll start treating people the way that we treat broken items. Because our culture says, if it messed up, get rid of it. It doesn't deserve a second chance. It doesn't deserve to be cleaned up. It doesn't deserve to be fixed. Just get rid of it. We may treat cars and cell phones and appliances and all kinds of stuff like that. But we cannot treat humanity that way. The church cannot have a disposable mentality. There are no throwaway people. Everybody can be restored. Brother Griffiths, prove it. Galatians 6 and 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. You know what that means? You better be kind to them because you're going to need them to be kind to you. You better do it in meekness. In other words, you do it with a clear understanding. I don't live good enough to be in a glass house. And one day I'm going to need grace. I'm going to give grace. So I'm going to get grace. I'm going to be a restorer. Restore such a one in the spirit. of. We're told not to throw them away. We're told not to discard them. We're told not to just put them in a certain section of the church that says broken and malfunctioned and probably not going to make it. No. He said if anybody's overtaken in a fault, if you are spiritual, if you are spiritual, you're going to restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Maybe we need to start redefining what true spirituality really is. Maybe we should start changing things just a little bit. You know, when our children fall down and when they scrape their elbows and when their knees are bleeding and when there's tears streaming down their face. I don't know about you, Brother Lampkin, but I didn't walk up to, 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 to little Merritt. I didn't walk up to little Madison while they're laying on the ground with their bobo bleeding with dirt in it, with tears streaming down their face. I didn't walk up, in, up to them and say, well, you had it coming. And if you do, we need to pray for you tonight, today. Amen. When I saw my kids, let me tell you what. I tell you what, if you do that to your kids and the others, mom and daddy's around, they're probably going to be words, right? Right? I didn't walk up to my kid after that, after they fell down, after a mistake was made, uh, and walk up and say, well, you had it coming. That'll teach you. You got what you deserve. That serves you right. Uh, I bet you won't do that again. We can't do that. Uh, and that's definitely not the way to treat our brothers uh, and sisters uh, in the Lord. Uh, when one of them falls, uh, we don't stand around and say, well, I knew it was going to happen sooner or later. Uh, uh, you know, that, that'll teach them. Uh, I guess they won't walk down that. But no, 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 no. I ain't got time to point a finger. I'm trying to patch them up. I'm trying to fix their spiritual bobo. The reason why we just simply went and picked up our kids 
their greatest and most immediate need was not to have a finger pointed to them. They needed to be picked up. Terry and I ran to our children when they fell down and were hurt. Before there was a rebuke, before scolding or anything else, we held them, we picked them up. We told them, Mama loves you, Daddy loves you, let's get this fixed up better than new. And then we took a moment to explain how they could avoid falling or stumbling that same way again. And that's exactly how the Lord said that we are to treat our brothers and sisters who have fallen. We don't show up with an, accusa- without, with, with an accusation. We don't show up with, with, with being judgmental or accusatory. They know they messed up. They don't need you to tell them messed up. What They, they need help picking the pieces up. They need help gathering it all. They need help to stop the bleeding in their life. And when the healing process starts, you'll have an opportunity to talk to them about making the right decision so it doesn't happen again. But when they fall, they need your love, not your judgment. When they fall, they need to pick me up, not to put me down. Oh, I feel like I'm in the Holy Ghost this morning. It says, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one. You don't prove you're spiritual by just speaking in tongues. I said, maybe we need to redefine true spirituality. You don't prove you're spiritual just by worshiping. You don't prove you're spiritual just because you pray. You don't prove you're spiritual just because you're faithful to the house of God. But what the word of the Lord tells us that a true mark of spirituality is playing a part in the work of restoration in somebody else's life. Ye who are spiritual. Now you're not going to do that. You're not going to restore somebody if you're not praying, if you're not worshiping, if you're not faithful to God's house, if you're not full of the Holy Ghost. But if you stop there, you are not a mature Christian. Ye who are spiritual, you need to be playing the part in restoring somebody. You need to be actively involved in helping God touching up the canvas of somebody else's life. Thankful that God takes special care with each one of us. With each move of his brush in our life, he restores. Joel 2 says, I will restore unto you the years, years. Whatever sin has taken from you, whatever has been lost, whatever hard times has caused to fade in your life, whatever it's caused to be blemished, just one touch of the master's hand. If you'll let him move in your life today, he can bring it back to life and restore hope. He knows exactly what we need. He designed us. He knows the original intent of our makeup. This, 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 this one needs to be touched up with a shade, with just a shade of red. This one needs some forgiveness. This one needs a fresh start. This one needs a do-over. This blood's for you. This one needs some hope. This one needs some faith. This one needs a little bit more long-suffering. This one needs some joy. Psalms 51 says, uh, He restores unto me the joy. He restores unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uh, this one needs a touch-up of grace. This one needs a touch-up uh, of mercy. And if you'll let him today, he'll bring restoration to your life. Job's life was falling apart in need of restoration. He had lost everything. The shine had been taken from his life. But then God picked up the brush 
promise of restoration in his life and he would never be the same again. The Bible says that the latter end of Job was greater than the beginning. In other words, when God got finished restoring, it shined brighter than it ever shined before. Don't let the enemy tell you that because where you've been and what you've done, your life will never get its shine back. You'll never get your luster back. Job lost everything. But when God got finished with his handiwork, it was better than what it was. I'm telling you, the devil is a liar. You can't get your shine back. You can't get it back. The latter end of Job was greater than the beginning. We look at David and Bathsheba. Oh, they were in need of restoration. A disgraced king caught in an affair had played a hand in the murder of another man. And Bathsheba caught in adultery. They came together in the palace. There was a child that was coming. And that child would end up, uh, uh, the Lord would end up taking that child from them. There were whispers in the palace that what starts out in sin will always end in sin. There were whispers in the palace, send her back. Send her back to where she came from, David. You know that nothing good's going to come out of this. They, 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 their life was coming apart at the seams, the fabric. What was once a beautiful picture, not yet completed, but painted on that canvas was a man after God's own heart. His love songs and lullabies to the Lord. The slaying of a giant. The handmaiden saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten. Oh, what a beautiful portrait that was being painted. But in the middle of it, it became marred by a decision. It became defaced and blemished by sin in David's life. Their lives were coming apart at the seam. But God stepped in because David said, God, I'm ready to repent. I want to get my heart right with you right now. And God begun his restorative process. God didn't give up on death. David and Bathsheba and they didn't give up on God can I tell you today and God won't give up on you How do you know he didn't give up on David and Bathsheba? Because they lost that child. They lost that child. But when it was done, David stood up. He took off the sackcloth and ashes. And they said, what's wrong with David? Shouldn't he be crying? Shouldn't he be in mourning? What good is it now? I've repented. I've given it to the Lord. He's judged us. I can't go back and change it. But he went into his wife. He went up to that time. It always referred to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah. It never called her the wife of David but after God's judgment and after David's repentance it said he went in to Bathsheba his wife you see God turned the page now people in the palace didn't turn the page people around the kingdom didn't turn the page but God turned the page and he knew Bathsheba and she bore him another son and the Bible says and the Lord loved Solomon Can I tell you, God doesn't hold a grudge. Mercy never holds a grudge. And when God turns the page, the page is turned no matter who doesn't like it. God began to paint with his restorative brush. And he brought the color, the thought, the vitality and vibrancy back into their life. God could do it for David and Bathsheba. He can do it for you. 
Mephibosheth's life's portrait was marred by a fall. But then his life was completely altered by God's restorative hand. One event would shape Mephibosheth's life. A new king was coming. A new power were coming to the throne. Because he was a prince among those in Israel. They grabbed him and fled for safety. But his nanny, the one that was in charge of his well-being, she stumbled, she fell in the rut in the field. And when she fell, she heard the cracking and the breaking and the crumbling of Mephibosheth's little legs. He was about four or five when it happened. It broke his legs, it deformed him, they didn't set right. He was marred, he was marred. He would never walk the same again. Wouldn't be able to hold a job down. He would be limited for the rest of his life. That one day, that one mark, that one blemish on the canvas of his life, he felt like that they would never be able to get it touched up or removed. But then his life became completely altered by God's restorative hand. He got it all back. When the Lord sent an invitation for him to come to the king's palace, he said, I'm going to restore unto you. I'm going to give you back your father's land. I'm going to give it back to you. And, and, and I'm going to let, I'm gonna let the, the, the servant here, I can't remember what his name was, she maybe, um, I'm not quite sure he said but I'm going to let this man, you're going to tend his land and you're going to take care of it uh, Mephibosheth got it all back uh, he thought the day that he fell he thought the day that he messed up uh, that completely marred the portrait of his life uh, but what he found out uh, that when God begins to restore that there's going to be another day that will outshine that day when you messed up and lost it all and that was the day when God spoke into your spirit and said the losing is over the losing is over. The cowarding is over. Staying in the corner is over. You're not a loser. You're not a quitter. You're not worthless. You're important. You matter to me. And everything changed. I'll tell you, there's seven things that God said he wants to restore. He said he'll restore your health in Jeremiah 13, 30 and 17. The Lord will restore your health. He will heal you of all your wounds. Ruth 4 and 15, he says, I will restore your life. It tells about the way that God provided for Naomi's life to be restored after her husbands and sons died. He said, and he may be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. David's cry in 51 says, I'm going to restore your joy. Joel 2.22 in our scripture text says, I'm going to restore the wasted years. I'm going to restore to you what the canker worm and the palmer worm has eaten. And then Galatians 6 and 1, he says, I'm going to restore your spiritual walk. If someone's caught in sin, then the spiritual community is to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. I'm going to restore you spiritually. And then in Isaiah 58, he said that both you and your family, your spiritual family, will rebuild the breaches and fill the place in your life uh, that were once used uh, for rubbish uh, I'm going to restore your paths uh, and then he said uh, that uh, that uh, that he's going to restore your damaged uh, your depleted soul the shepherd psalm elegantly declares uh, that God restores my soul he leads me in the paths of righteousness righteousness God restores and God wants to restore here today. Could we stand in this place today? I feel the winds of restoration in this house today. I want you to know as the song so aptly said earlier, he never stopped. He's never stopped working. 
One of the world's most beloved paintings is Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal. It's on display in the museum in St. Petersburg. Imagine. Imagine for a moment. Just imagine for a moment that some men decided to break into that museum during a night of drunkenness they broke in in order to deface those pieces of art completely oblivious to the value of Rembrandt's painting that it was worth tens of millions of dollars they rip it off the wall they slash the painting diagonally from frame to frame they pour cheap beer over it. They stomp on the painting itself, leaving muddy boot prints ground into the canvas. Just imagine. When the curators discover this painting, they're distraught. In their eyes, what was once priceless has been reduced to nothing more than trash. A dishonored masterpiece that communicated deep, deep truths about healing and restoration. Deemed to no longer be worthy to be on display, tarnished and vandalized painting was put on auction. And people from all over came to bid on this once masterpiece for either bragging rights or sentimental value. Just imagine. Imagine for a moment that Rembrandt was still living. Seeing and hearing about what had happened to his masterpiece, he was furious. He was aghast at the complete disregard for what is esteemed to be the pinnacle of his life's work. Just imagine he went to the auction to reclaim the painting, and when he arrived, he encountered men and women who could only see the painting in its present form. They could only see the painting ripped and torn and tattered, limply hanging from a frame that it once so proudly filled out. As such, they were bidding a pittance on what it was worth, outdoing one another just by a few dollars here and there. But Rembrandt, however, had other plans, and the room grew silent as he boldly bid against himself and bid the full value of the painting to where it was before it was vandalized. It was an astronomical sum. Silence was broken by the auctioneer's gavel. People sat sat stunned. And Rembrandt walked out of the room with the painting, returning it to his easel, paying full price. As Rembrandt gazed at his once masterpiece, his heart was full of sorrow. His life work was reduced to trash by the callous and careless actions of those who could not see its value. And yet... Although he was not blind to the slash canvas or the footprints of mud or the odor of stale beer, in his mind's eye he could still see the painting in its original glory. So he began, he began painstakingly to restore the painting, weaving together the painting along the slashed line with almost imperceptible thread. Although a faint crease like a scar now traversed what once had been an immaculate piece of art. He painstakingly cleansed the mud from the canvas and where the paint had been distorted and 
by spilled beer. He matched the hues from memory. And he touched it up because he knew the original intent. And after many long hours of arduous work, he stood back. Sweat pouring from his brow, he simply smiled. His apprentice came in and stood shoulder to shoulder with him and admired the restored masterpiece that he paid full price. He said, I can see it now. The painting restored is even more beautiful than what it was the first time you painted it. The crease through the painting only seems to bring out the motif of restoration that the picture originally tried to portray. I can see reconciliation more now than I can see the wounds of separation more now than ever before. Putting his hand on Rembrandt's shoulder, he said, you're the greatest artist I've ever known. All well-known artists have left masterpieces for the world to appreciate. But you're the only one I've ever seen restore masterpiece defaced and destroyed be more sublime than its original form. Nobody else wanted it. It's marred. It's messed up. But the creator was willing to pay full price in the condition that it was in. You've been mine twice. First I made you. Then I bought you. I told you to imagine, but can I tell you, my friends, you don't have to imagine this morning because the story I just read you, that's the story of the gospel. The story I just read you, that's the story of us. He made us. We were masterful. But sin discolored, disfaced, blemished us. He saw us in our present condition and said, you're not worth pennies. I'm going to pay the ultimate price. And I'm going to restore you. And after I restore you, you're going to be better than what you was before. God says, you've been mine twice. First, I made you. And then I bought you. Can I tell you today that first he made you and at Calvary he paid the ultimate sacrifice. The only question remains, are you going to let him restore you back to his original design? Church, would you lift your hands right now? Can I tell you there's a promise of restoration in the house?